Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Today on the show we have Akeem Reinhardt, a professor of history at Towson University in Maryland. He's written a great book about the politics of Pine Ridge, and that takes up most of our discussion in the uh, coming episode. But I wanted to also kind of uh, do a bit of an introductory take on a bit of the conversation that we have at the very end, toward the very end. We talk a little bit about his current project that he's working on and get into a little bit of a historical uh, discussion about the uses and of various theories and, and the people involved in those. Certainly, um, historical theory has a role to play and does in how historians set up their investigation and their research. Um, I tease him a little bit about uh, not getting, I think, too Hegelian on us, which is a reference to the early um, 19th century philosopher and thinker Georg Hegel, um, who starts us down a path of thinking that, uh, in some ways as he is interpreted, as thinking that history has its own kind of shape and its own kind of direction. Obviously, there's tons of debate about that uh, in in historical circles, in sociology, uh, and in other disciplines as well. And in the past 10 or so years, this has popped out in popular uh, discussions about the meaning of history, and it's led into political arguments and debates about how to interpret history. I think in the end that uh, this is all very healthy for the popular understanding of history because, well, hopefully, it allows people to kind of understand where an author and researcher might be coming from in their research. So I tease him a little bit about not going down that uh, path that history has its own shape and its own forces and it's internal to itself without people uh, pushing it in different directions. And I bring up a couple of people also um, and when so when he says, uh, when Akeem responds to me that he is going to be more Black Elk than Foucault, that's a signal that he is sticking with the sources internal to uh, the Oglala tribe as a cultural entity and not uh, going down the path and interpreting of that through a postmodern philosopher such as Michel Foucault. So, that's all the background on that. I thought it would be helpful. Um, as you'll find out in this discussion, I've known Akeem since we were grad students at University of Nebraska in the late 90s. Um, 
He's a great guy, thorough researcher, and uh, we had a great conversation. So I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have Professor Akeem Reinhardt. Akeem is a professor at Towson University in Maryland. He received his PhD in history at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where we met in 1998. His work focuses on the politics of Pine Ridge Reservation. And while we've been discussing that book, uh, which is entitled Ruling Pine Ridge, published by Texas Tech University Press, his second book is called Welcome to the Oglala Nation, a documentary reader in Oglala, Lakota political history. Uh, that was published with the University of Nebraska Press. Akeem, welcome to History 605. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're welcome. Um, uh, I appreciated your book uh, for many reasons. One of which, though, is that it deals with uh, American Indian history post-1890 uh, and mm-hmm. the closing of the frontier and the massacre at Wounded Knee. And uh, so much of what we concentrate on is kind of Custer-driven, you know, crazy horse-driven, sitting bull-driven mm-hmm. history of uh, American Indians, and particularly the Lakota. Uh, but you remind us that the history continues and the story continues in, in very important ways. And I'm wondering, how did you get interested in this, uh, and how did you wind up at Nebraska studying American Indian history and Pine Ridge? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm originally from New York City, and uh, when I went to college, I studied uh, East Asian history, China and Japan. Um, I did take one anthropology course on Native America, but most of my work was in Asia or studying Asia. Uh, And then after I graduated, I really didn't have any intention of becoming a historian or going to graduate school for anything. Uh, And while I was kicking around, I just kind of began reading about Native studies. No particular reason. Nobody told me to do it. I just kind of fell into it. And uh, one book in particular, uh, Vine Deloria Jr., Custer Died for Your Sins, really kind of opened my eyes uh, to things I didn't know. Uh, particularly the 20th century. That book came out in 1969, and Mm -hmm. he's talking a lot about things that happened in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it was really eye-opening. I I had already done some reading on on things in the 19th century, but I was like, wow, this is a, a whole new story. And then when I eventually did decide that I wanted to go back uh, to school, graduate school, and study history again, um, I at that point I decided, well, I want to study Native American history. I, I didn't commit initially to Lakota history. It wasn't, I didn't think, okay, this is what I have to do. Uh, but I did start doing some work on it at the master's level. Um, and uh, when I was looking for a doctoral program, uh, I did my master's in New York City, and I was looking for a doctoral program, I wanted a place that had a native language as part of their offering. And uh, my advisor at the master's level suggested Nebraska, uh, and I ended up going there and working with John Wonder, and they had Lakota language at the time, and so I kind of stuck with Lakota history. Uh, it's interesting, you know, after I left, they they changed over from Lakota language to Omaha language, okay. uh, which is obviously that reservation's a lot closer to Lincoln, Nebraska than any of the Lakota reservations. But that's, that was my path into Lakota history, and uh, I've been studying it now for, uh, gosh, over 25 years, close to 30 years. Wow. So how is your Lakota? Uh, it's, it's okay. It's, it's, it's washed out, but it's not, it's, it's not great. Yeah. I'm not fluent. I did, I did two years, uh, at Nebraska and I've never, ha- I've never lived on any of the reservations. I've never had an opportunity to, you know, kind of get immersed in it, but, right. um, it, it's good enough for me to do the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's say that. Yeah. And you've done quite a bit of, uh, so before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could just kind of, so you're at Nebraska, you're, you're falling into this and John Wonder 
kind of steers you into the Lakota. What drove you to think about 20th century or Pine Ridge in particular? Well, my, my, when I did my master's at uh, Hunter College, which is part of the City University of New York system, uh, I ended up uh, doing, that's when I really started doing some Lakota research, and uh, particularly uh, uh, the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. Mm-hmm. And that was, I, I kind of, moved towards that because of readings that I was finding, uh, you know, various memoirs by people who were involved. And then I kind of stumbled into the FBI documents and I realized, oh, there's a project here that I could work on. Um, And I was still open when I got to Nebraska, I was still open to doing, you know, maybe, maybe that path, maybe a different path with the native studies. But then when I got to Nebraska and they did have Lakota language, that kind of cemented it for me, you know, kind of all the pieces came together there. Right. Well, the subtitle of your book is Oglala Lakota Politics, From the IRA to Wounded Knee, and your IRA is not the Irish Republican Army. Right, it's the, nor the individual retirement account. Nor the individual retirement account, right, which uh, everyone seems to watch it fall these days. But That's right, yeah, um, it's a little rough right now. Yeah, but the, your IRA is the, is the Indian Reorganization Act, and so your mm-hmm. book, uh, as I recall, when we were on the, playing on the grad school softball team and listening <laughs> to you talk about Wounded Knee, and then when your book came out, I was kind of surprised. Well, this isn't. This has like almost nothing to do with 1973 wounded knee, and and you very helpfully start back almost at the beginning in many ways. I'm wondering how did you um, come off of uh, thinking about it just in the in the FBI files and that kind of stuff, and want to go back to the cultural politics and the setup of of why that occurred. Yeah, so I like I said, I had done some earlier research, a master's thesis on kind of the causes of uh, wounded knee. And one, you know, when I was working at the master's level, one of the things that I it began to occur to me was that this, you know, that wounded knee hadn't unfolded. Nineteen seventy-three hadn't unfolded the way it was often presented at the time. The way people often talked about it was, um, you know, the American Indian Movement versus the federal government. Mm-hmm. And certainly those two sides got most of the press, but the more I had looked into it, the more I saw that really this was a local political dispute between uh, the tribal chairman, uh, Richard Wilson, known as Dick Wilson, mm-hmm. uh, and local uh, Oglalas on Pine Ridge who, you know, were unhappy with his administration. And that was a kind of a prolonged, you know, heated uh, dispute uh, that involved an impeachment attempt and so forth. And then that eventually mushroomed into the occupation of Wounded Knee. Uh, and once Wounded Knee happened, then, you know, AIM was very experienced in, in working with the press or manipulating the press, depending how you want to look at it. Mm-hmm. And the federal government was involved. And so, you know, a lot of reporters who showed up, they focused on AIM versus the feds. But to my mind, this was really a local political thing. And so once I had understood that, then I, then I felt like I needed to understand better the roots of where that came from. And that brought me back to the Indian Reorganization Act, also known as the Wheeler-Howard Act of uh, yes. 1933, where the government began to overturn its longstanding assimilation policy and, and make more room for Native people to, uh, you know, express their cultures and so forth. But another thing that the IRA did is it kind of shoehorned a new system of government onto a lot of reservations. Um, reservations had a chance to opt out of it, 
but Pine Ridge did not, and in a very hotly contested uh, referendum, uh, by a very narrow margin, the, the people of Pine Ridge agreed to accept this new form of government, uh, which they still have, uh, the Aglala right. Sioux Tribal Council, uh, which was created by the IRA, uh, I guess it's about 90 years ago now. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it had always been an an uncomfortable fit in some ways, uh, and its existence exacerbated certain tensions on the reservation, um, and it would, you know, flare up from time to time, and, and the biggest flare-up uh, in that case was what, what ended up becoming the occupation of Wounded Knee. Okay. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the, you know, the kind of the cultural differences there. I think in your appendices in that book, you kind of helpfully list out the I would guess I, I might call it the, the well, it's the constitution of the uh, of the Oglala or Pine Ridge today, or mm-hmm. as it was in the IRA's version of its mm-hmm. constitution. Um, it's it's hauntingly similar to the what you might see in our, in the federal constitution today, mm-hmm. and so your your discussion about the differences and so forth and negotiating that. What's the role of John Collier, um, mm. who we've talked about on this podcast before in other okay. c- circumstances, and um, the Roosevelt administration. What's what's the impetus for the IRA at the federal level? What are they yeah. hoping to achieve? I mean, Collier's a really interesting figure. Um, I won't go into his personal history too much, although it is interesting. But um, he is, you know, on, he's kind of a mixed figure. On On the one hand, he really respects native culture i mean in kind of an idealistic naive way but he does respect it um, and he wants to end these assimilation practices that ban native languages and ban native religions Mm -hmm. you know Um, so he's good with that but he's also uh you know a colonialist this is the 1930s uh, you know, the British and the French and, and a lot of other European nations still have their colonies. It's before World War II. Um, and the United States has some colonies in the Philippines and Puerto Rico and so forth. And he looks at, you know, Native nations as being colonized. And what he really wants to do is he doesn't, he's not in favor of them becoming independent. What he's in favor of is a more indirect form of colonial rule by the United States. So he looks at the old assimilation policies as like a direct colonialism where the United States is very hands-on and telling them what to do and, and you know, controlling their governments and, and their cultures and their societies. And he's looking at actually British models um, uh, elsewhere in the world, in Africa and, and the South Pacific, some other places where the British Empire had... Uh, introduced what they called indirect colonialism, where they allow the people to run their own affairs, as you know, and they, but they just need to remain within the British imperial system and with British oversight. And that's what he was with his IRA. The the uh, the R stands for reorganization. He mm-hmm. wanted to reorganize native governments in a uh, somewhere along those lines, along that okay. model, where they wouldn't be independent. They still wouldn't be independent, but they would have more self-government, more home rule. Okay. Uh, these are some of the terms that he was familiar with. So he's, he's kind of an in-between figure. He's a transitional figure away from the more oppressive um, forms of uh, direct rule that the United States you know, set up the reservation system with in the 19th century uh, to uh, a system that uh, allows Native people more freedom and, and self-rule, but he's not in favor of them becoming independent, free, sovereign nations. Uh, okay. So he's kind of, yeah, kind of in between there that way. Does he use the term colonialism? Uh, 
He does. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I've, I, I actually ended up writing an article uh, uh, a little before the book came out in the journalism, colonialism and colonial history. Okay. And I found, you know, some of his writings where he talks about the British colonial officers whose writings influenced him um, and and this idea of indirect colonialism. You know, it's he's, he's very open about it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not the kind of thing he makes a big deal about in his in his public talks necessarily, but it's definitely part of his his thinking and the way he looks right. at it. So the Irish Republican Army reference that I did kind of half-jokingly is, yeah. is perhaps maybe a little bit too close to the heart of the matter from yeah. his Yeah, from it's, his not, it's not totally out of line in that uh, sense. Home, right? I mean, home, rule home rule with the Irish is, and the English and so forth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, home rule is a big concept in, in, in British-Irish relations. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, so then they vote. You said it was a close vote. What's mm-hmm. the— What's the first kind of inc- – how is this introduced on Pine Ridge? I mean, how do they go from the ro- being the rose, uh, Rosebud or maybe where they're still Red Cloud Agency to – the reservation, and then from the reservation to mm-hmm. voting for Pine for IRA. yeah. So it, it starts with the Great Sioux Reservation set up uh, by the Second Treaty of Fort Laramie, eighteen sixty-eight, yeah. and then in eighteen eighty-eight that reservation gets parceled out by an act of Congress into six, uh, pardon me, five smaller reservations. It's the ones we know today: Cheyenne River, right. Standing Rock, Rosebud, Pine Ridge, and Lower Brule, um, and then. Uh, and those reservations are being run by the the Office of Indian Affairs. Before the, the Bureau of Indian Affairs used to be the Office of Indian Affairs before World War II uh, agents. And then so when Collier comes in, he's he's going not just to those reservations, but all around the country, all right. the reservations in the country, more or less, and trying to get them to accept this system. But Congress, and it's a bill, it's a piece of federal legislation, so it just applies. But Congress changed his version uh, in some ways that, uh, he, you know, we might look and go, eh, that's a shame, but in some ways that were good. And one of the things that Congress did is it gave Native reservations the opportunity to opt out instead of just applying this to them. So he began a big campaign. He, he held about half a dozen major conferences around the country, meeting with Indian leaders. He held one on, on the Northern Plains. He held one on the Pacific Northwest, one on the Southwest, a few others. Mm-hmm. And he really pitched it. You know, these conferences ran for two or three days, and, uh, and he had his staff working the reservations, and teachers at the reservation schools, at the government schools, would tell the kids to tell their parents to vote for this. And there was a lot of pressure, you know, and he would tell that he was sometimes a little fuzzy with the truth. He said, you know, there's monies available with the, with the what was being called the Indian New Deal. And yeah. if you don't, if you don't accept the new government, you won't get the money. That wasn't true, for example. So, but there was a lot of pressure. Um, and a lot of people on Pine Ridge didn't want it. Uh, when the referendum came around, some people did want it. Um, and it was, it was a narrow vote. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Uh, it's in the book. It's a thousand and something, right. I think high 900s, something like that. But there was also a lot of uh, abstentions, a lot of people who didn't vote. And in a lot of mm-hmm. Native cultures, including Lakota culture, uh, in the old days, you know, uh, not voting was not necessarily, oh, I don't care, like, you know, a lot of Americans don't vote in modern elections because they don't care. But uh, it was a way of saying kind of, you know, the way I explain it sometimes is like the old saying, oh, I won't dignify that with a response, right? right. We, we've all heard that before. So it's another and, form of no. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like, this is wrong, and it's, I'm not, not going to dirty myself by participating in it. Right. So some of the abstentions were certainly part of uh, an expression of that. So at the very least, I mean, well, I shouldn't say at the very least. I mean, what we can say firmly is that the reservation was very divided. It did pass narrowly. 
an actual straw poll might tell a somewhat different story. But the, the bottom line was very contested and very divided. Uh, and, and not every reservation around the country accepted it. You know, and all of the Iroquois reservations in New York turned it down. Hmm. Uh, the biggest reservation in the country, Navajo, down in uh, the Four Corners region of the Southwest, they turned it down. That's so right. a, uh, there were a number of defeats. Um, but uh, it was, like I said, it was hotly contested on Pine Ridge, and it, it did barely pass. Right. So then with the new constitution and the setup and so forth, is there, does there emerge a kind of a different power base, or do they kind of muddle through mm-hmm. the next yeah, 30s and yeah. 40s? It's a great question. Uh, you know, they're, the, the, uh, the OIA, now BIA officials, they come in to the reservations. They kind of offer them a, a boilerplate constitution, mm-hmm. you know, like a template they can all use. Um, that you know, because it's it's really a a, a government design, um, and and it does it does lead to competing power bases. Um, there are there are the people who embrace this system and want to take it and use it, and then there are people who are kind of on the fence about it, and then there are people who are opposed to it. Um, I think one of the the book. Uh, the book came out in, I guess it's 2007. I can't believe it's 15 years yeah, ago. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that I could have done better, I wish I had done a little better in the book, is my analysis of that issue, which kind of is now spurring my current research. Uh, in the book, I, you know, I, I, I try to talk about the issue. I do talk about the issue of these different power bases. And I, you know, one of the things that comes out in the 1930s when this is being debated is uh, the issue of, you know, the language of full blood and mixed blood people. And Mm. on one side, a lot of the people opposing the IRA and the new constitutional system are calling, they're saying, we're the full bloods and this isn't what we want. It's not our style of government. On the other side, there are people who are saying, oh, well, we're mixed bloods or they would say we're progressive people, we're forward thinking people and this is the future and this is what we want. And there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, these people aren't always getting along. Uh, you know, when I wrote the book 15, 20 years, I was researching it 20 years ago. It came out 15 years ago. Uh, you know, as an outsider, I, I didn't really have uh, the nuance uh, and the sophistication and the insider knowledge to handle that issue with the subtlety that it needs. Mm-hmm. And so I was a little uh, heavy handed at times, uh, not on purpose. I just, you know, I, it was just a shortcoming in my analysis. Um, I think what I didn't appreciate at the time, I mean, I, underst- I did understand that these issues of full blood and mixed blood weren't always biological, right? These were, these were shorthands for cultural differences. People yeah. who call themselves full blood were more enmeshed in Lakota culture in many ways or in certain ways. And the people who call themselves mixed blood were seeing themselves as more Americanized. Uh, for example. But, you know, I didn't, I, I don't think I fully uh, appreciated just, you know, how rural and, and tight in some ways the, the, the reservation was. And at the end of the day, everyone's kind of related to everyone else. Um, and so these different power groups did emerge and it did, it did cause friction. Um, but in other ways, of course, people got along very well. And what I'm working on now is trying to understand that, how, mm-hmm. you know, because Lakotas have a category for mixed people that American society doesn't really have is trying to develop now. But I think it was only until 2000, but before the census, before you could even list more than one, check more than one box for yourself, right? right. Whereas Lakotas have always had uh, a category of mixed person, uh, which they call Ieska, or in the old days, maybe Ieshka, 
uh, which means translator or, or something like that. Uh-huh. And it wasn't a racial thing. It was, you know, if you were born and raised Lakota, you were Lakota. And if you were born and raised something else, you were something else. But if you were born and raised in both worlds, Lakota and another world, maybe you had a Cheyenne parent and you went back and forth between the two sides and you were bilingual and you understood both cultures and societies, then you would be uh, a Yeshka or a Yeska. Um, and so there's this third category. And what I'm looking at is how that changes over time with the arrival of Europeans and eventually Americans in the United States and the pressures that that puts on Lakota society when they lose their independence, when they're hustled onto the reservations, when they're given these new forms of government, when they're dealing with poverty and and so forth, when they're subjected to cultural discrimination, you know, your language is banned and your religion is banned and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And and so really, I, I think it's a story of how, you know, it's a society that has its own way of organizing and understanding itself. Uh, but then when it's subjected to these pressures, it kind of wrenches the society. And some of these things that are, are you know, working well, sometimes it can create friction points. And uh, you see this historically at different times, you know, when the reservation's first being set up, when the Indian Reorganization Act happens, when the, the occupation of Wounded Knee happens, right? When things mm-hmm. are, are tough, yeah. that's when these frictions kind of, uh, start to elevate and, and become more apparent. So in normal day-to-day life, people can kind of elide over the frictions to get along, but when something jarring comes along and there's a big decision to make or there's a, a crisis or something, it yeah. just exposes yeah, I mean, that. I, I think it, like yeah. in, in any society, sure. right, there are people... Uh, you know, you don't always get along with your uncle, maybe, or, you know, or those neighbors or, or what have you, right? Um, but then again, he's still your uncle, they're still your neighbors, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and so day to day, yeah, you know, you just go along with your society, and they're the people you like, and the people you don't like as much, and, and that's part of life. And then when things get difficult, those tensions can flare up. I mean, I think we're seeing this here in the year 2022 over the last, you know, several years, five, six, seven years, we're seeing this in America on a, on a much broader level, right? Yeah. Where, I mean, people talk about this all the time. I mean, it's just a very divisive era we're living in, yeah. right? Um, over the last, you know, at least since 2016. Um, and I think all Americans are noticing this in our own society, in our own larger society now. Uh, certainly those of us who are old enough to remember the Cold War, right? The, 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 the hostility among Americans right now is almost unthinkable. You know, if you think back to the 1970s or 1980s, um, that we would be disagreeing so fervently over, over some of this stuff. But that's where we're at as a society right yeah. now. And, and, and Lakota is certainly on Pine Ridge and, and some of the other reservations, you know, they've had their own, obviously, travails that they've had to deal with. And, and when it gets difficult, uh, that can lead to some, some disputes. So what are the, as the, as the IRA and the new constitution is set up mm-hmm. and so forth, what are the old disputes that are now exposed? Or can Great you question. think of an example? Yeah. So, it's, I mean, it's a, a lot of it is, uh, you know, you can look at it, it's a couple of different things. One, I think, is, you know, well, here's this new government system and who's going to be in charge of it, right? Yep. So pol- just political power. Yep. Uh, another thing is, you know, symbolically, culturally, what does this mean? You know, what, what does it mean for Lakota society and Lakota culture to have this new system and, and who's going to support it and who's going to, you know, feel like they are, are, want to be part of something else? Uh, so I think that's the initial one. Um, and then by the time you get to 1970, 
71, 72, 73. Uh, I think part of what's going on there, I mean, the Dick Wilson administration, obviously, he's a very contentious figure. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a big, uh, abrasive personality. But, you know, the reservations are starting to reach a point where they have a little more going for them economically. I mean, it, 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 you know, the 30s, you know, well, from their founding up through World War II and, and the 50s and 60s, a lot of the reservations, as we know, were mired in deep poverty. But Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty and, and the uh, Great Society, and, you know, he had these anti-poverty programs, and some of that, not a lot of it, but some of it flowed into reservation economies. Mm-hmm. And so by the late 60s, uh, Pine Ridge and some other, you know, Northern Plains reservations that had had these longstanding economic issues, they're starting to get a little more money to to figure out what to do with. So there's a little more at stake, you know, yeah. there, there's there's more jobs to be had, not a lot, but there's some more jobs and, and some more money. And so I think that's part of the story of what happens when you combine it with Wilson's, I mean, he was, he, he, he could be corrupt and he could be uh, abrasive and he could be dictatorial at times. He, he didn't have a soft touch by, by any means. And so all these things came <laughs> right. together to kind of resurface those issues. Right. Well, before we get into the 70s, I think one of the things that was um, uh, kind of drew my attention to your book, too, was the, uh, a lot of people t- talk about the Eisenhower area and, and the termination of the desire mm-hmm. to terminate the reservations and to right. disperse the populations to the urban areas. Mm-hmm. And you make the point that uh, nothing dispersed the population to urban areas more than World War II did. And then the termination kind of piled on top of that. Or d- am I overplaying that a little bit? Well, no, no, I mean, that's it's, it's close to being on. I mean, World War II certainly begins it. That's mm-hmm. where urbanization of, of Native Americans really in, in full force begins. Uh, Prior to that, most Native people are living on or near reservations. Uh, I mean, some had lived in cities, but but most were were still living on reservations. And all of the job opportunities that come with the war economy, you know, it draws rural Americans from all over the country to the cities for for these plants. And so that certainly jump starts it. And then the the government does make an effort. uh, Termination was about essentially ending reservations and ending tribal nations as tribes and uh, uh, about a dozen or half a dozen or so uh, tribes were terminated, the Menominees in Wisconsin and some others. None of the Dakota tribes uh, in North South Dakota were terminated, but there was also this relocation policy of encouraging urbanization. Um, And uh, early scholars uh, probably overstated uh, the extent to which uh, Native people urbanized because of that program. Um, certainly the program when it began was poorly funded and uh, more concerned with, you know, numbers and just getting people to cities and not giving them the support they needed to make that transition. But, you know, Native people are savvy, and they quickly figured out what was going on. And uh, by the 1960s, you know, the relocation program starts in the mid-50s, and by the 1960s, Native people are using that program to their own ends. If they want to go to a city, then they get on the program and do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but urbanization continues as part of these larger... Tra- I mean, the whole nation is urbanizing and suburbanizing, you know, throughout the 20th century, and, and Native people are... are that 
that Trump begins with them later, you know, in World War II, yeah. uh, whereas, for example, with African Americans, it begins with World War One. But it, it does begin in World War Two, and and by and large, they make the decisions. And it's not a lot of it's not permanent either. With a lot of Native people, there's back and forth. You know, they might be uh, in a city for a few years and then go back to the reservation, or right. seasonally and back. And they they maintain a lot of them maintain family and community relationships there, and, and go back and forth. Uh, yeah, as a part of that, is that some of the reason why? It- Let's say you get a job in Omaha or Chicago, mm-hmm. do you send your money back to Pine Ridge? And, sure, remittance. Yeah, and, yep, help yeah, that's economy. kind of yeah. fueling a business back there or something. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, who is? Uh, let's get into some of the folks you you mentioned. Vine Deloria. What's mm-hmm. what's Deloria doing? In the 60s and 70s, he's he's professor in Arizona, right? Or is eventually uh, what he's in 69 when uh, that's his first book, Custer Die for Your Sins. He's, right. he's actually still a law school student. I forgot where he went uh, to law okay. school, but he's still working on his degree. And he's finishing up. He had he has an interesting, li- very interesting life story. Yeah. Um, he's he descended from Dakota, not Lakota, but Dakota uh, missionaries who had, had uh, uh, converted to uh, Protestantism and who had then come out to preach and, you know, organize a church among the Lakotas. And so he grew up on Standing Rock, even though his parents were Dakota and European. Uh, But, you know, he was in the Marines. He went to a seminary. He eventually decided he did not want to be a, a, you know, a a minister. Uh, Went to law school. He was chairman of the National Congress of American Indians for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he wrote this book and became a bestseller and that kind of, you know, put him on the national stage. And he finished his law degree and he did become a a law professor. He was at Arizona for a while. He was at Colorado for a while. At the end of his career, wrote a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, and, and I mean, I, I think most most observers would cite him as probably the most important Native intellectual of the 20th century. Right. So, but he doesn't necessarily directly start the American Indian movement as a no. As a group. He's, he's actually he's, he's not involved with AIM, and he's yeah. somewhat critical of them. I mean, he, I, he, okay. I, I, my reading of Delore is that. He appreciates some of what they're doing, but he also sees them as maybe uh, naive and ineffective in certain ways. Okay. Yeah, or maybe he sees them as a little naive and a little cynical as well. I mean, he understands how they're manipulating the press, but he, mm-hmm. he thinks they're ineffective in you know making real play. I think Deloria looks at AIM in some of the same ways that Thurgood Marshall looked at Martin Luther King, <laughs> oh. <laughs> which is that Marshall, you know, was a lawyer for the NAACP and he sure. thought all these protests, that's not going to do anything. You go into court and you win cases. And that's that's how right. You win. Yeah. I mean, Marshall eventually came around. He realized, Oh, well I won Brown versus board of education. They're still not desegregating. Maybe yeah. we do need some kind of direct action and social action to make this happen. Right. But um, yeah, I think Deloria saw aim as, as you know, doing some good things, drawing attention in some positive ways, Mm -hmm. you know, to the issues, but ultimately not super effective. But, you know, I think he also did recognize that, you know, they they were important and other other red power groups and movements were important in raising that consciousness among many Native Americans, you know, to combat, you know, that that sense of that being Indian was wrong or being Indian was inferior or something to be ashamed of. and 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 pushing back against that, and I and Deloria obviously was you know didn't didn't stomach that either. You know, I mean, if if you ever anyone ever reads 
Custer died for your city. He has a biting sense of humor. Yes, he does. Uh, and he can be very satirical and sarcastic uh, yeah. in, in pushing back against these, you know, stereotypes uh, about Native people. Right. I love the title of one of his chapters, Anthropologists and Other Friends. Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite <laughs> titles, too. Yeah, that's one of the great yeah. <laughs> chapter titles of all time. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, so... I guess what I'd like to come around to then is uh, mm. AIM starts with fellows like Russell Means and so forth, mm. which are mentioned in your book, and, our, and Russell Means is from Pine Ridge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it grows up off the reservation for the most part, but yeah. he, uh, what is their uh, hope then when they see this um, uh, issues going on and Dick Wilson kind of, to use the phrase, back at the ranch, back in Pine Ridge is going on, yeah. what is their hope by kind of parachuting in and and getting something done is it is yeah it a media play question. what's the what's the goal yeah it's an interesting question i mean they, the aim starts in minneapolis actually uh right uh, their founders are ojibwes uh and and means gets involved fairly early on he, he had been living in cleveland at the time uh where he had gone on the relocation program because he got a job there so he just you know, okay. got a free bus ticket and moved yeah. down there yeah uh, and he starts an aim chapter uh, and, and AIM is really like a movement. It's not like a sure. tight organization. It's more of, you know, th- there's chapters all over the country and eventually, and, you know, they each kind of operate independently. Um, but it's, you know, it starts in Minneapolis and it starts with, you know, urban, ur- urban uh, activism, you know, uh, helping kids with after school programs. It's kind of loosely modeled on the Black Panthers, not, not, not closely, but loosely modeled on the Black Panthers, you know, urban activism, uh, like I said, helping kids with after-school programs, helping people with discrimination against employers or, or, or landlords, this kind of thing, police brutality, you know, they, 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 mm-hmm. they're into that kind of thing. Um, and they kind of, as, as they're evolving, you know, they start to realize, you know, a lot of them have reservation roots. I mean, these, these, the, it's the men and women who founded the organization a lot of them have, have, have passed away recently. I mean, you know, they were born, these are mostly men and women who were born in the Depression, right? Mm-hmm. And, and they have, a lot of them have reservation roots, um, but they had been removed, you know, in one form or another from that and, and had grown up in cities and lived in cities. And they were looking to get back. And I, I think they didn't, they didn't, you know, when they showed up in South Dakota, it was, you know, to help with a, a, a case, uh, the, the death of Raymond Yellow Thunder. Stu Magnuson wrote a, a great book about that, well, also with Texas Tech Press. Hmm. Um, you know, a, a protest about, uh, you know, some, some guys just absconded a, a Native person off the street and, and, and beat him to death, essentially. Hmm. Uh, and the local authorities were slow to act. And, you know, this led to some protests, and AIM got involved in that. And kind of like one thing led to another, but they... To answer your question, you know, I think they found themselves in South Dakota and they started they, they at, at, in Pine Ridge. They they started, you know, aligning with uh, the people who for lack, you know, in this language, it's problematic language, but the full bloods. Right. Uh, the people who are practicing Lakota religion and so forth, which is interesting. Right. Because, you know, yes, means yeah. is from Pine Ridge. But, you know, guys like Dennis Banks and the Bellacourt brothers, they're Ojibwe's. Right. Yeah. And what's their attraction to Lakota religion? Right. It's, yeah. You know, it, it's an interesting question. Um, but I think they're looking for the next thing and they're looking to connect back to their roots, even if it's not their roots tribally uh, for some of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they see uh, the, a lot of the elders who are opposed to Wilson as their natural allies. And those Wilson, anti-Wilson activists 
you know, like this infusion of, you know, energetic youth to help them with their protests. But, you know, it eventually spins away from uh, the, the elders. You know, uh, they're, they're, I, I've come across, you know, interviews where some of them say, you know, we started this protest at Wounded Knee and against Wilson, and now, now it's this aim thing, you know, kind of got away from us. And right. it, it, you know, in, in the eyes of the world and the nation, it did become aim versus the feds. Right. And both Dick Wilson on one side and his opponents on the other kind of got sidelined during the occupation where the federal government is pushing Wilson to the side saying we're in charge now and AIM is kind of elbowing a lot of uh, the local people, not all of them, but some of the local elders out of the way and they take over the occupation and, and it does become, uh, that they, those two parties do become the focus. Okay. So if you're, gonna, if you're looking at it, you're, let's say you're sitting in Miami or whatever in 1973 mm-hmm. and you're reading the paper, the papers would kind of show that the, the two sides are composed of the federal government and Dick Willison and exactly. the tribal well, authorities and on the one Fed. side. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Wilson and the Feds. Wilson and the yeah. Feds. Yeah. And AIM and other locals right. um, on the other side. So wh- what, is the, what is the issue between other locals and Dick Wilson that, that flares up into occupying Wounded Knee? It's, you know, it's about, you know, Wilson uh, comes, he wins an election in 1972, uh, uh, and uh, he, you know, he's he's a difficult personality mm-hmm. uh he's bombastic he's abrasive uh he can be dictatorial um he eventually puts together kind of like a, a little private army uh for himself yeah they have a lovely name don't they yeah the goons they call themselves the goons uh yeah. the guardians of the oglala nation g o o n the goon squad uh, and, you know, his opponents are accusing him of corruption and of uh, uh, nepotism. And these kinds of issues, he he didn't pioneer anything here. I mean, you know, these things go on in, in governments from time to time. And, and this, had, this had been part of Pine Ridge politics to some degree uh, prior to this. Uh, but like I said, now there's a little more at stake because some of this anti-poverty money is coming to the reservation. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are actually some jobs and, and, and so forth. Um, and so and uh, just... You know, so what starts out as like unhappiness, you know, the usual political unhappiness that you might see anywhere, it, it gets worse in part because of Wilson's personality and his approach. He's just, you know, no holds barred. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's not putting up with any kind of um, of critiques and so forth. Uh, and and so things begin to escalate, and then. As AIM enters, you know, he's very immediately very hostile to AIM. I mean, in the very, very early days, he says he welcomes them, but pretty, pretty soon he turns on them. And so AIM's kind of bringing up the temperature. And then he turns, he, he in turn turns to the federal government and starts bringing in, uh, you know, uh, first uh, uh, the FBI and then the marshals. Mm-hmm. And so the, things get um, not only super tense, but things get militarized. You know, I mean, the right. government's in there with, you know, with, with arms uh, eventually bef- before Wounded Knee. Um, and, and so it's just a ramping up. It's, you know, it's a small, it's a small local thing that just spins out of control. There's a, an attempt to impeach him that fails. It's close, but it fails. Um, and when the impeachment fails, then his opponents feel like they really have nowhere to turn. They start thinking about more protests, and the thing just kind of spirals. Hmm. And so Richard Nixon is president. What is, mm-hmm. what is the federal government's version of, or view of all this uh, other than send more FBI agents? Or are they, yeah, that's interesting. There's uh, some nuance Nixon, to what they try to do. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because Nixon, you know, obviously a lot of problems with his presidency that, that are well known. We don't need to rehash here. But 
in terms of Indian affairs, he's actually one of the better presidents right. historically. He's one of the few presidents that ever had any interest in Indian affairs, right. you know, certainly during the 20th century. And, um, and so in some way, he did a lot of great things on Indian affairs. He helped some tribes get land back. He restored the Menominees who had been terminated. He did a lot of great things. But in the, in the same way that Nixon was very hostile to um, uh, minority activists in the African-American community, Black Panthers and so forth, he, he, he really didn't have any patience for groups like the American Indian Movement. So uh, uh, his administration is not, you know, he, he's not going to. He's not sympathetic. He's not, toward... a fa- he's not a friend of aim. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, so he doesn't get directly involved. He kind of delegates it to his people. He doesn't. He doesn't want a big, bloody thing to happen. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, and that, you know, helps explain why this becomes a protracted seventy-three day siege, you know, yeah. with a negotiated settlement. I mean, uh, uh, a couple people do get shot and a couple people do die uh, amid the many firefights that take place. Uh, but uh, the Nixon administration went hard after the American movement uh, a little bit before this and certainly after this, they essentially uh, neutralized AIM uh, th- uh, through a lot of court cases uh, and bankrupted them and put them under a lot of pressure. Okay. And then what happens with the um, original issue with Dick Wilson. And, well, uh, Wilson, after the, after the uh, occupation ends in May of 73, uh, Wilson runs for re-election in 74. It's another hotly contested election. Uh, Russell Means runs against him. Mm. Um, uh, the Means camp claims that there's massive fraud. There's eventually a, uh, a civil, U.S. Civil Rights Commission investigation, and they do find a lot of problems, but they don't do anything about it. Um, uh, there, the violence continues. Uh, there isn't another big occupation, but there, there is a lot of violence between the two sides during 1973-1974. Um, the Leonard Peltier episode takes place during uh, okay. this time, uh, the shootout at the, at the jumping ball compound. And then in 76, uh, at the end of his second term, Wilson is done. Uh, Alex Whirlwind Horse uh, wins that election. And that's kind of a, you know, a, a, a calming, that's, that's the beginning of kind of a, a calmer uh, period, and a lot of the violence subsides. Okay, so just Wilson's presence is part of the... It's a is, big factor. It's the instigator yeah. of the problem. It is yeah. a big factor. He's, he's, a, he's, he's a difficult person. I mean, he's an interesting person and a complex yeah. person. You know, we don't want to fall into some of these stereotypes. He's fluent right. in Lakota language, for example, right? So, okay. yeah. uh, you, you know, we want to avoid these kind of easy, facile, oh, he's a mixed blood and so forth. I mean, he is, but, yeah. you know, he's, he's from there, too. Um, yeah. uh, but, yeah, he's, he's a difficult person. Uh, personality and, and bombastic and all these other things, and and he drives. He's driving some of that violence, and AIM is driving some of that violence. And mm-hmm. you know, AIM begins to peter out uh, as a national organization and, and divest from the reservation as well. So when the two parties begin to separate, that's when uh, a sense of calm and peace returns to Pine Ridge. So I guess the the big question in your book is maybe the uh, as a historical conversation change over time. Uh, is the IRA as an act as applied to Pine Ridge? Would it? Could you chalk up a scorecard of was it the right thing to do? Or, you know, that's it's, that's a really tough question. Yeah, um, I don't. You know, it's like it's ninety years now, sure, uh, and it's had its ups and downs mm-hmm. uh, to be certain. Uh, so uh, it's you know, in the end, it, I don't. 
you know the the even the even the even the tribes that didn't accept reorganization, you know, they still have a. They, it doesn't change the fundamental relationship that they have with the federal government, mm-hmm. right? That that system that um, Collier envisioned of indirect colonialism that's you know still in place, and so you know tribes have as much authority as the federal government allows them to have. Uh, there was a big turning point in the 60s and 70s towards the era of self determination. This a, a kind of a codification of this home rule ethic without using that language, using the language of self-determination, allowing tribes more authority to handle their affairs without uh, federal oversight or federal intervention. Um, so, uh, you know, it, 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 was it the right thing? Was it the wrong thing? It, it's, it was, I, I, I'd say it's, it's complicated and it's a mixed bag. I it's, mean, there's certainly some sure. good things that have come out of these opportunities. You know, Lakota's on Pine Ridge have been able to use the IRA at times to get things for themselves. Uh, and then at other times, it's been a source of contention. So it's it's just really been a, an up and down thing for them. Right. And it continues to be. So yeah. Uh, yeah. moving on to your next uh, project, you, you talked about um, getting into maybe some of the more nuances. What what are you researching next for your next project? So I'm, I'm working on a, a, a new book manuscript where I look at this issue, uh, like I talked about at the beginning, of mixed people and, and, and how Lakota's understood what it mean, meant to be a mixed person, mm-hmm. how that changed over time, and what role uh, European colonialism and U.S. conquest and, and rule played in those changes. So, for example, how the concept gets racialized, right? It's not originally a racial concept. It's a purely cultural concept um, uh, and, and, and so forth. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going back, you know, we, we began talking about how, you know, I, I was looking at the 20th century and, uh, but I actually am going backwards in time now. So I'm yeah, you're probably going back to, to the that, early 1800s yeah. um, and going to bring it up to uh, the 60s and early 70s and, and look at these issues. And, and what I'm seeing is that, you know, that there, there is, you know, it's, it's part of Lakota culture. And uh, there are these moments where it changes, uh, sometimes under the pressure of, of what's going on with the U.S. and Europeans. And, uh, you know, there's an equilibrium and then there's tension and then you get a new equilibrium. And, mm-hmm. and so uh, I'm kind of tr- I'm trying to chart that over about a 150-year period. Don't get too Hegelian on me, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, I'm not going to be using a, a too, too, too the much dialectic. theory there. And the, yeah. the theory I will be using will be drawn from Native scholars. So Very good. Uh, Very yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Keep it, keep it home-based. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, more black elk than Foucault. Right. That's right. That's right. For yep. sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Akeem, it's been very good to talk to you again, and uh, I wish you well in your project. And I know you spent some time in our archives here uh, this summer, so I yep. uh, hope you found some stuff that was Absolutely. helpful. Absolutely. It's, it's a great place, and it's, you know, the staff was really wonderful, and it was just, I love going there and doing research there. It's a wonderful right. place. Yeah. And you you did some research on the reservation too. You were down at Pine Ridge. Absolutely, yeah. yeah I always uh, when I go out that way, I uh, go out to uh, uh, Pine Ridge and the Oglala Lakota College Archive, uh, uh, run by uh, Tawa Dushno, and she's wonderful. Yeah, uh, yeah OSC and, folks. Uh, That's good. So I got to go both of those places, and it was it was really great. Good, good. Well, we look forward to your next book, and I hope uh, we can have you back on the show when that's out. Well, it was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on, and uh, always, always great to talk to you. Good to talk to you. Bye. All right. So long. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history.
We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting. And most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.